0: Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world
1: today. Welcome to the Asian Banker Radio Finance, the online broadcast platform that aims to enhance industry knowledge and understanding of critical issues that impact the sector today. We're happy to have uh, on our panel today Alicia Garcia Herrera. Chief economist for Asia Pacific at French investment bank Nathesis. she joined the bank in 2015. And beyond her work as an economist, she is an academic and has worked in Bruegel, a think tank based in Brussels. She is an adjunct professor at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology and a senior fellow at Bruegel. and also a non-resident research fellow at Real Instituto Elcano. I would like to invite now Alicia. To very briefly review the region's economic performance in 2019 before giving us an overview of where she sees the region in 2020, which country will do well and which countries will suffer, and the key themes or trends that will characterize the region in the year ahead. Alicia?
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to talk briefly about the a- Asia's outlook. It's obviously very difficult to figure out what the outlook will be, given that since we started the year, we've already had two major shocks. One was a geopolitical shock, Iran, and um, US attack on Iran and Iran's retaliation. And the second one is obviously the coronavirus. And, and so far, it's Basically, a China risk, but it could become a global or at least a nation risk. So, on that basis, I just have to tell you that whoever thought 2020 would be absent of major shocks after a very, very volatile and impredic- hard to predict 2019, I have to say that 2020 looks already, and we're only, you know, basically going to the end of January looks already worse than 2020 in terms of of, uh, lack of predictability. So on that note, um, let me share with you our outlook uh, for 2020 for Asia. And the first idea as you see in the list of uh, um, issues I'm going to tackle very briefly is, is indeed 2019, because 2019 was a difficult year for Asia, especially North Asia and China, of the trade war and the semiconductor cycle, Um, I guess a low base calls for a a better um, performance in 2020. Southeast Asia was resilient. So the question is will it continue to be resilient? Overall, our call is that 2020 will be similar to 2019. And I'll uh, zoom into China for that matter and the key elephant in the room mainly corporate risk, but not everywhere in Asia, mainly in China. I will then move to a longer term um, perspective for the Chinese economy so that we better understand what to read out of uh, additional deceleration in 2020. And that's basically, our reading shouldn't be excessively worrisome in as far as it does reflect a structural deceleration which is set to continue if beyond 2020. So, in other words, 2020 is not special. China will decelerate and, and it will do the same in 2021 and thereafter. And that's something we need to get used to that there's no such thing as a return to the good old times in terms of very high growth in China. Finally, to end on a positive note, I'll make some comments on offshoring to Southeast Asia. And the idea being that because China is becoming increasingly expensive, the offshoring um, begins to happen and, and, and it's only going to get accelerated, no matter the phase one deal. The phase one deal, first of all, keeps most of the tariffs, about 20 30 billion. Um billion. Nobody's going to believe that we're back to square one and therefore the, the, re, the reshoring away from China into, in particular, uh, Southeast Asia, and we claim Vietnam and Thailand as, as key recipients, uh, is set to continue. The wage structure is in, in China is not going to come down anytime soon. So if I don't have time to go through all of the slides, at least you have heard the key messages of the presentation. On that note, um, let me uh, go back to um, The first idea, why was 2019 a a bad year for Asia? Well, it's not really about the trade war only, it's about global deceleration, as you started pointing out, uh, which uh, fed that deceleration in Asia. The very good point though, is that very important is that the Fed did help, and it helped especially countries with current account deficits, and in particularly India, uh, this year might be quite different for India, by the way. Um, Indonesia, so you see in, in right there that these were the countries with the largest uh, interest rate cuts by their central banks, which means the Fed did help con- countries in Asia with larger current account deficits, India being the largest by far. So that's important to remember. Will we have this support in 2020? In principle, no. Why? Because the Fed won't cut any longer. We have had one more cut uh, from the Bank Negara, Malaysia, uh, but we didn't for Indonesia. Yesterday, we didn't for South Korea. And frankly, we think the cuts, unless of course the coronavirus gets absolutely viral, if I may say, and affects growth in the region. But barring that scenario, I think we should think of more stable, more more. Um, kind of neutral monetary policies in the region in 2020. Um, I'm going to move slightly faster, if you allow me into the yeah. idea. Please. Okay, uh, 2020 is that a boring year, yeah, in the sense that about the same as 2019, less monetary stimulus uh, indeed. But a, a good news out of, of what I'm going to say is that, except for Chinese uh, corporate risk, and of course, I'm not claiming that we'll have a full-fledged crisis in China um, by all means. But except for China, the rest of the economies in terms of corporate risk look quite moderate. Singapore having experienced the largest increase already from a high base. But other than that, you know, Japan, Korea, follows. Australia, these are developed economies, the level of uh, corporate uh, debt is not uh, as massive. And then Malaysia, Thailand, India, Indonesia, Indonesia in particular, very very low. So in, in that regard, I think we need to realise that there is resilience. That this idea that EM Asia is very indebted uh, corporate wise is wrong. It's it's because with some lot of, and it's really about China. Let's not forget. So um, I want to move on uh, very similarly. Um, we don't really see much um, uh, issues with government debt, uh, except for Japan, um, which obviously uh, can actually cope with it in a way or another. So helicopter money, you know, monetization of the uh, central bank balance sheet. In other words, nothing to really worry about um, in terms of crisis either, um, Government, uh, you know, defaults, uh, restructuring, huge restructuring of debt, and so. On. China is the closest um, target for that, but we argue that it's too early for China to really not be able to control um, uh, corporate risk, um, and thus we are kind of you know, of the view that there will be defaults, not necessarily massive defaults, and there will be a massive contagion effect in China out of that. Uh, but I'm going to give you more figures. Uh, Do not forget geopolitical risk. I only mentioned very briefly Iran, but you do need to really really change, in my opinion, this word tariffs, which was dominant in 2018-19, for the word uh, sanctions and sanctions associated with Iran. This is going to be a major uh, risk-off event. Uh, We had one already, although it didn't really Involve China. I think we just have to wait for one more to to see the connection. China is a very large investor in Iran and and a very large oil importer. And that, I think, increasingly the the U.S. administration is going to come after China on the realm of sanctions rather than tariffs and trade. So that's something we, we, we should be kind of watching, which is important for the year. China, the only thing I want to say, and this brings me to the, of course, very topical um, coronavirus issue, which is that China last year did not suffer in terms of GDP deceleration, although the deceleration was much faster than in the last few years. This deceleration can't be explained by the trade war directly, meaning the current account went back to surplus, a relatively big surplus compared to where we were in 2018, um, 1, and 1.5% of GDP. And why did it come back? Because China limited imports quite aggressively to counteract even more than counteract the reduction in exports. Can China do the same? This is literally one and a half percentage points contribution to China's growth in 20. Uh, 19. Imagine how low it would have been otherwise, okay? Can China do that in 2020? Not really, as, as long as it com- complies with, um, with the requirements from the U.S. to import as much as 20 billion uh, from that country. So, you know, uh, the only way to, to keep this 1.5 percentage points of GDP is to really it lower imports from anywhere else, and uh, Germany is a very important case in point. Korea and Japan, these are really um, kind of competitors for the U.S., uh, uh, with the U.S. in the Chinese markets for manufactured goods. So in that regard, if China doesn't want to have major trading partners uh, upset about the deal, the phase one deal, it will have to reduce this um, surplus which means that uh, to keep growth at a level um, consistent with the target uh, in the great rejuvenation of the nation's rejuvenation plan, China needs to grow 5.7 and it doesn't have the support of external demands. It really needs to boost consumption and investment. Given what's happening with the coronavirus, this looks. Difficult, frankly speaking, because the sentiment is negative. We have um, the, the idea of um, SARS about a half percent, uh, sorry, one percentage point even more for some analysts was um, shaped away from growth then. And remember at that time, China was more of an export driven economy rather than a consumption driven economy. So for the same type of shock, it can be worse now because of how much of China depends on consumption and investment rather than um, external demand. So in that regard, it, China would need more stimulus to get to the very same uh, growth target. And this is something I wanted to highlight because as I said, is kind of in the making. I'm going to jump a little bit on the banking issues or very briefly, um, Expect more stimulus, monetary stimulus. We had already one in our in one hour cut uh, first of January. People read it as the one and only. Um, you know, it was like kind of a present, and they'll wait for more to come. Well, I, I have a very different view. I think uh, monetary uh, stimulus is in the making. I realise that there is some problem with inflation, but the, in the headline inflation, which is another graph uh, I can show you right after. Uh, I'm going to jump on the infrastructure. So uh, headline inflation is indeed very high in China, but not core inflation. Core inflation is coming down below 1.5. This means that China is still on a deceleration trend Structural that overcapacity is more of a problem than uh, supply constraints. This, This is only true for pork, and we know that supply is being increased very aggressively in that regard. Um, I just think that, that the previously does have the room needed to do more stimulus and watch out, which is the other graph you have here for the renminbi because uh, uh, China needs to grow and the room to grow, especially given the circumstances now, very special circumstances, is smaller and smaller. Um, China may have promised to keep the exchange rate strong but if there is a risk of event, whatever that might be, from the coronavirus to Iran, China can use that opportunity. As other EM currencies go, the renminbi can go as well. And and that wouldn't be necessarily perceived as, as a currency manipulation because other EM currencies could go. Check for risk of events, such as, again, coronavirus, Iran, and the like. Check for other EM currencies to move and wait for the renminbi to follow. I think China does need a weaker currency at this current juncture. It's not going to be massive, don't take me wrong, because they need to still show their face to the US, but they're not going to keep um, at above seven or below seven, sorry, uh, easily in the current circumstances. So, so that's my call on the renminbi. Um, Okay, hey, so I need to speed up. I'm very aware that I'm uh, late. So, so in a nutshell, no hard landing. That's not the, my call, at least. I mean, our call exists. Texas. But uh, more stimulus, because there's many factors that were supporting last year, such as the current surplus, which might not be there this year. So more needs to come from stimulus. The exchange rate is one of the three major demand policies we all study. You know, 101 economics. So from fiscal, to monthly to exchange rate, and we can't forget the last, the last one. Uh, the, all of this means more leverage, uh, absolutely. And the the final thing to mention is that um, you know, for the one unit, as, as we know, I is to go up in China in other words, for when unit need of output they need more and more stimulus which means more and more leverage so so this, this, this is of course that symbol bode well for China beyond 2020. think about um, the CCP's anniversary in 2021 so basically room for maneuver room for maneuver uh, 2022 might be a very interesting year for China but it's not going to be this year so um I just want to say that the corporate risk is very obvious. So you can see there that in our Texas, China uh, and Asia corporate monitor, we we rank countries and sectors for that matter in terms of their financial health. So we look at uh, debt dynamics, revenue dynamics, and capital management. In other words, the return on capital. And China does uh, look worse than any other economy Investable economy in Asia or, you know, just uh, Japan, Korea, Singapore, or Taiwan. So, this, this is in a way um, a, a sense of fragility, which doesn't mean, again, crisis, because a lot of these cases, well, we have seen defaults, uh, next page, uh, in, increasing since 2018. Uh, no central SASAC, mostly local governments or local SASAC and private companies. But the point is, we are going to avoid seeing major defaults, i.e., very, very large companies, which might appear but will be restructured in a way that might have some cost for the investors but will be dealt with without a full fledged um, default. Um, Same for the banks. We've already seen this with as many as. Five banks in China: Baoshang, Jinzhou, Henfeng, Henan, Jichuan, and Harvard. And all of these banks are basically have not received, at least an official capital injection. But they've been entrusted to either asset management companies or a larger state-owned banks. So in that regard, we can understand that there is increasing systemic risk, which is not been fully dealt with in terms of capital. But at least it's been if I may say um, protected or covered or surrounded by safer uh, hopefully i mean not hopefully clearly safer or institutions at least in terms of of their capital um, uh, requirements um, and how capitalized they are so uh, the latest is um, this idea that although we saw a rally in, in, tech, uh, in the tech sector in the last few days. Our call at natix is, is to focus on boring sectors, such as telecom utilities, um, rather than new sectors, such as healthcare, semiconductors, and ICT, because these new sectors are actually worse in terms of financial fragility. And this is all for listed companies only, I have to clarify. So I'm going to skip a little bit all of that because it's very detailed, but you know, happy to to hear more from you. As for China's structural future, again, this slowdown that we're expecting all the way to 5.7 this year is just one more year of structural deceleration. And uh, as you know, if, if not convinced by that, we just need to look. I'm going to move all the way to the World Bank and the NDSC projections for growth in this very, very good uh, report called Innovative China, where they show very very obviously, very bluntly I may say, that China will not grow above 1.7% from 2030 Mm -hmm. to 40 without major reforms or or, or at least with limited reforms. So that in itself, if, if, if we, reach the 5.7 and uh, yes, we achieve the nation's rejuvenation. We need to remember that this nation will not rejuvenate again in 10 years whatsoever, mm-hmm. not even in 15. And this, mean, this means that by 2031, China will stop converging with the US unless the US engages in a massive crisis. Yeah, so uh, US right. potential growth is about 1.7. So, this is, in a way, I think what, what we, we need to realize is that this should help put us in a different mindset about China. Uh, that mindset mm-hmm. needs to include that China will be rich uh, by 2031. At least, I mean, as rich as not only Japan, but Korea or Germany. Or, so China will be a middle-income or high-middle-income country with a mm-hmm. low-growth uh, prospect. Um, and that's what China going to be. It's not. That, I don't mean to say that will be terrible or anything like that. But, but I think we need to kind of put China where it belongs in terms of growth uh, in a decade. In a decade, okay. Uh, and this is taking into account innovation at least as much as possible because total factor productivity in China has not increased. If not, it has actually decreased. Notwithstanding the massive increase in R&D in in human capital in the last few years, Um, the reason might simply be that a lot of the innovation is is debt-driven, and and, you know, again, it's about ICor. How hard it is to make uh, increases in total factor productivity when you have a debt-driven process to create innovation and, and, and productivity. Very final word on Southeast Asia. So this is a little bit hard to read, but anybody interested can ask for the slides on global value chains. So what I want to show you is that global value chains actually generally globally are, um, being, are shrinking, okay? There is less and less uh, uh, trade of in, uh, intermediate goods globally. So in a way, I could say countries are becoming more localized, more local. This is true in Asia, uh, but interestingly, the only uh, region, sub region in Asia, which sees increasing uh, integration, trade integration, uh, as measured by the size of the global of the value chain, i.e., in, uh, again, process, inter- exports, and imports of intermediate goods, that region is ASEAN. It's not China with the rest of Asia, it's ASEAN. So, ASEAN has, in my humble opinion, a bright future because it's, it's, it's showing, at first, it's the region, I mean, it's received more FDI than China already in 2018, even, you know, even before this the year horrible, horrib- like 2019. Even before that, China, uh, ASEAN received more FDI. Than China, so I'm just saying it. It it seems to me that a story, kind of a bullish story. There you have the detail: South Korea, Taiwan, and Japan FDI into ASEAN increasing, and manufacturing worker monthly wage um, for China uh, increasing the fastest and already by far the highest in Southeast Asia. So on on that note, I think we I need to conclude that it. 2020 is not like a break, break the boat type of year. Although we may look, uh-huh. uh, we may think it is given what we read today on the news. But I don't think it, it will be. It will be another difficult year and another difficult year for China, and rightly so because, in a way, China would have to accept this more easily or more comfortably this structural deceleration that is unavoidable, and uh-huh. because it. It's not doing so, it's creating waves of leverage that are going to lower um, potential growth down the road. And that's the numbers you see from the World Bank and NDRC. Um, no massive defaults in China, but clearly more systemic risk uh, at the corporate and, and the banking the banking level. Thank you so much.
1: Okay. Thank, thank you so much, Alicia, for uh, talking us uh, through uh, some of the um, uh, risk that you see uh, and as you mentioned 2020 will be very much like 2019 already very uh, unpredictable in, in the first few days of the year um, you you shared that uh, 2020 itself will not be worse uh, than 2019 um, but there are uh, in, in the first month itself uh, some uncertainty uh, that may impact China more right so in terms of uh, Iran. Um, you, you shared that uh, uh, this year the focus is not so much on tariff and possible sanctions with China and Iran related uh, exposure. And, and of course we, we are living through uh, this uh, health scare uh, because of the nova coronavirus. Uh, but still very early days. Uh, but you also talk about long-term uh, structural deceleration of China and, um, and Uh, the impact over Southeast Asia itself uh, may not be so negative. as Southeast Asia is is, uh, becoming a a center for uh, global value chain uh, or supply chain as well. Um, um, So so in the long term, China doesn't cast a long shadow over the region as some people hope. Uh, That we have benefited a lot from uh, the very high growth of China But that uh, structural deceleration is yet to stay. Uh, China growth will slow and in in a decade time, um, even with uh, structural reform, uh, it it will not experience the kind of high growth that we see before. And in the longer term, it will be a high middle income uh, country with low low, low, uh, growth.
0: Yes, with uh, low growth, indeed. the reason why China will have low growth is just um, structural factors such as aging, the completion of urbanization. Um, it's very mm-hmm. hard for well, what do you it's call the uh, add-
1: uh, demographic trends, right? Sorry. Or headwinds. What you describe as uh, demographic headwinds uh, that uh, the country faces.
0: Yes. Yes. Demo- demographic headwinds. Uh, the completion of urbanization. Because, you know, for example, uh, Thailand has demographic headwinds, but urbanization is not completed. Mm -hmm. You know, there are ways in which you can create more labor force. I mean, many, one is, of course, the the participation, uh, you know, female uh, uh, participation in the labor force. This is Japan. Then you can have Thailand way which could be, you know, like urbanized, um, the agro, and the kind of the rural areas, which brings growth. Um, some might simply be through migration, immigration. China literally doesn't have any of these possibilities. So it's very, very hard for China to undo, if I may say, the impact of aging um, on growth. Very, very difficult.
1: Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, uncertainty still or uh, unpredictability, especially on the geopolitical front, uh, Iran for example, uh, and also on this um, kind of um, extraordinary risk coming from health, right, uh, a novel uh, virus. Um, the, the risk for a kind of a recession risk around the region um, with let's say if there is a worse or hard landing, which you don't see for China,
0: I think it's very hard to yeah. session in think, the yeah. region. Very hard. Frankly speaking, I think even Hong Kong might bounce back because the data for the second half is so poor that you know just yeah. anything that that flies in a way will create. Growth, you see, because of the base effect. Of course, the, right. the um, elephant in the room, or, or uh, would be for this coronavirus to become literally um, systemic, and that. But that's a scenario yep. that I would prefer not to focus on too much, because a lot is being said. But frankly speaking, I think we're too early to to evaluate such possibilities.
1: Okay, uh, when well, we talk about the uh, corporate sector or public sector uh, uh, leverage issue uh, and also the exposure uh, in the financial system, especially in China, with the smaller regional banks. Um, China has already started deleveraging, but with slower growth, you you, you think in 2020 there will be more stimulus and uh, that will kind of delay deleveraging. Uh, how, How big of a risk? and how big of a risk uh, to the rest of the banking system?
0: I think the most immediate risk for China is uh, basically to try to absorb capital inflows which would have gone to the rest of the region. So we do see um, now inflows into the region. um, Mm -hmm. Good news. The question is, will China be "quote unquote" desperate enough to really increase? We've seen a lot of uh, real estate developers' uh, bond issuance um, beginning of the year. So, will they come a- and grab that market? Which is, you know, right. it, what I mean. like if China needs um, dollar liquidity and swap it back to the mainland, and you know, basically uh, use uh, capital inflows as another source of liquidity. Mm. Will that be at the cost of uh, rest of EM Asia? That's a big question I would argue for the region. The other one would be that China itself is lending in the region, uh, more infra, right. so project finance. What if China decides that it needs money at home because the economy continues to do very poorly and there is a sudden <laughs> stop now yeah, of, of lending. So there the countries that would be most severely affected are basically frontier markets with a lot of dependence on Chinese lending. These are Sri Lanka, these are Pakistan, uh, sorry, Cambodia. I mean, all of these uh, economies which who, who are indeed uh, borrowing a lot from China would suffer.
1: Okay, okay. Um, for the rest of uh, South and Southeast Asia, um, you, you mentioned it will be a, a, a bright spot, uh, except for the more advanced economies like Singapore, uh, um, <laughs> and uh, and and they are benefiting a lot from the uh, supply chain shift. Um, so so in terms of, of China's impact on this economy is lesser. They they are benefiting a lot more from that, uh foreign direct investment from, uh, as you mentioned, Japan. Uh,
0: Europe, uh, Korea, even. Uh, So, indeed, so two things to clarify. First, the North Asian economy, especially South Korea, so dependent on the semiconductor cycle because it's the largest export for Korea. Uh, I think these are, for me, these are um, buying opportunities. Why? Because Mm. last year was horrible. So so I'm positive on North Asia, for for that specific reason. And especially South Korea, because it was so bad last year. But the the cycle is back. Think about the rollout of 5G. A lot of semiconductors are needed. So there is a reason, it's not just because it was. um, On Southeast Asia though, the the point really is that there is structural uh, support coming from reshoring away from China. Uh, from North right. Asia, as you point out, but also their own, yep. uh, their own resilience, you know? I mean, think about mm-hmm. Malaysia. Malaysia, we all think, oh my right. God, Malaysia is a fat rate, Malaysia is huge mm. um, uh, political risk. I mean, we still have to remember Malaysia 2015 with a very poor ringgit people looking at the, the reserves has not been enough. And Malaysia is still outpaced most EM countries growth in the world, you know, it's like this, I mean, at least at the, set yep. for the same level for income per capita, for sure. I mean, Malaysia uh, grows double um, what Mexico grows every year. So, so Southeast Asia is very, very resilient. We may argue it's very dependent on China, but again, Malaysia 2015 with a very low oil price, with a with right. very poor China uh, Chinese economy performance did well. We can't forget that. And we, you know, even Indonesia last year hovering around five, Philippines 6.2, third quarter. I mean, these are very good data points in terms of growth. Why? Very simply, because the Philippines, although we may say it's very influenced by China, yes, on the short term financial market, but growth comes from its domestic demand, which now is not only consumption as it used to be, but it's also infrastructure investment, the build, build, build story. And that's not going to stop anytime soon, uh, meaning the, 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 the very, how do I say, the insulation. Um, I know it looks a little bit exaggerated, but frankly speaking, some countries out there, including Australia, are more dependent on China than Southeast Asian economies. believe it or not. So okay. this is the important mesh, mm, message I want to give that I am okay. uh, positive of this Asia in relative terms, even if China does poorly.
1: Okay, because as a region, Southeast Asia has got quite a big population as well uh, to support consumption and infrastructure development for the future, right, as an as a, uh, economic uh, block.
0: Indeed. Indeed. Okay. Uh, and then, as I mentioned in, in our uh, data, Uh, The degree of trade integration is only increasing within ASEAN and excluding China. So this is something I think which is a hope for the region because it's creating its Mm. own engine of growth and it's not as dependent as we think uh, on China.
1: If we look at South Asia uh, with India itself, India kind of underperforms in terms of growth Uh, because of demonetization, because of its uh, legacy debt issue in the banking system. Um, And it it is also going through reform. How how do you see India and Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, they all have got a a pretty bad uh, legacy debt issues?
0: Yes. So, unfortunately, the story of South Asia is a bit different, especially India, for two reasons. Um, First. I mean, the, the building story, and, and in particular manufacturing, uh, investment in manufacturing is still lagging behind. The supply of goods is limited, um, which makes inflation, uh, as we see now, about seven, uh, very easy to come when liquidity, very easy to be generated when liquidity is ample. And I already showed that um, the RBI cut rates Quite aggressively, uh, following basically doubling nearly what the Fed did, and and in 2018, so uh, uh, 19, sorry, so so basically, I think India is a little bit of a of a different story. Um, the cut in rates comes from the fact that the transmission mechanism wasn't working. Why? Because as you rightly point out, both bank and non-bank financial institutions were saddled with NPS. There was this news today on. Uh, Yes, bank. I mean, it, it looks like the clean-up, the cleaning up, has not been finalised, and therefore, even that the economy is slowing down, and and uh, you know you have this very important issue on the banking sector. I think it's going to take a while for India to to be kind of the engine of the Asia of Asia's uh, growth um, in, in in 2020. I I don't see that in 2020. I'm underwhelmed by India's prospects in 2020. This is especially the case if oil prices shoot up, which might happen in the event of new uh, Iran standoff.
1: Okay. On that note, uh, we want to thank you, Alicia, for your insights and analysis. And we hope that our audience have also found this session insightful and useful. Uh, if you are interested, uh, to find out uh, more uh, of the outlook for the uh, region, uh, please go to the Asian Banker website and you can download uh, an issue of uh, the Outlook for 2020 report. And we have um, uh, Alicia also uh, and Netflix's uh, analysis uh, uh, covered in that issue. And uh, if you are interested to uh, register for upcoming radio finance sessions, um, on the next uh, critical issues that impact the industry, uh, please do visit the, the website as well. And you can also download um, special recording from past uh, Radio Finance sessions. So until the next event, we wish you all a good day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.